It's time for security now. Steve Gibson's here. We'll take a look at the week's uh, tech news, including the uh, latest flaw. He's got an update on GLibC. We also talk about Tor. Turns out it ain't all that anonymous. Maybe you better be listening next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 493, recorded February 3rd, 2015. Tor, not so anonymous. Security Now is brought to you by IT Pro TV. A good IT pro is always learning, and IT Pro TV is the resource to keep your IT skills and knowledge up to date. IT Pro TV offers engaging courses streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For a free seven-day trial and 30% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. And by audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show where we cover your security and privacy online with this man right here, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson, the guy in charge at GRC.com. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Is this your first time watching a Super Bowl? Is that it? You know, I don't think there was as much buzz about any previous Super Bowl. So I've been sort of warming up to it gradually, year by year. My Greg, my my illustrious tech support guy, who's been with me for, I think, 23 years, he is just like, okay, he, he tolerates employment just so that it allows him <laughs> to support his need for sports. That's a lot of us. <laughs> it's not unusual. You no, know, he's doing fantasy. I think, he fa- I think he fa- he I think he founded fantasy football, whatever that is. But I've been hearing about it like oh, yeah, forever. Yeah, yeah, and so he's just like I mean, sports is him in the same way that coding. You know, born to code is on my T-shirt. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know, born to throw something is on Greg's. Uh, and so, you know, as as a spectator, I don't think he's a participant, or at least not at you know we're all getting kind of older, and so it's not, it's not safe anymore. But, but um, so, so he's also a commercial fanatic, and so like the Super Bowl commercials, he was just like all over them for like for years before it even became a thing. So, anyway, this year, everyone was talking, of course, about Deflate Gate and all that mess, and and. Everyone was talking about the game. So I thought, well, I'll just have it on in the background while I'm working on Squirrel. And I have to say, I didn't get much work done on Squirrel. I, I, you know, my hands, my fingers were poised over the keyboard, but I was looking over here at the screen thing. Wow, these guys are amazing. It was just, it was great. And then, of course, I heard that everyone agrees that it was a great game. It was like a fabulous game for to for me to have like lose my it was super bowl virgin, a my lot of them are not virginity a lot of a lot of times the super bowls are kind of a letdown after great playoffs and all of that but uh right. this was an unusually uh good game and uh and it was hard fought down to the bitter end and i think anybody could have won it um 
I'm glad. And some amazing plays. The guy who was like bouncing the ball around and then finally ended up grabbing it at the end and keeping it off the ground. And I just like, wow, these guys <laughs> just don't give up. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty incredible. Plus, there's the great ads in between, which is always a lot of fun. So, yeah. Oh, I, and that and that halftime spectacular. I think you also saw the best halftime ever. Wow. I, I would I would I venture that. And those and, and those, it's I interesting mean, to see the technology. And by the way, concerts now yes, are doing that everywhere. Yes. Projection has become a, a high art. We I first really kind of realized that when uh, John took us to see the wall, Roger Waters' The Wall, and when they uh-huh. build the wall, the projections on the wall are pretty spectacular. But now I've gone since to other uh, big-time concerts, and the projections they have, the capability they have is amazing. And you really saw the state of the art there on the stadium floor with Katy Perry on the halftime. You know, Same thing they also, used at the Olympics, I think. Yeah, there was also a... A Beatles retrospective has it been what fifty years or something? I think it might have been a fiftieth anniversary. Anyway, they they used they used a lot of graphics, but they they, they were just sweeping, huge yeah, yeah. and dynamic and well produced. No, I mean we're just we got all, we're, we're beginning to get all this stuff figured out. So, and we yeah, should but, give oh, credit I, to a guy named Stan Honey, apparently, who's the guy who invented the yellow first down line and hockey oh. puck trails. First time I saw that on the grass, <laughs> I thought because I mean, yeah, you know, as, as a programmer and a, and I've messed with you know visual stuff. When I look at that in terms of pulling that off, and it's just like, oh my god, you know, and everyone else is like, yeah, okay, yeah, so, but it's like, no, write some code, <laughs> like make that happen. It is hard. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, this guy apparently is quite the genius. The company's called Sport Vision or Sports Vision. They have all those little bots floating around over the stadium. I mean, you know, to get amazing camera angles and follow guys running down the field and everything. It's like pretty amazing. Incredible stuff. Yeah. Sometime we'll sit down and we'll talk about the audio as well because uh, Alex Uh, Lindsay has done some uh, NFL audio and it's really interesting what they do. They wire the shoulder pads and stuff. It's very interesting. And, you know, cable provider ability to turn up the bandwidth and turn down the compression. And it really looked like we were seeing sharper video for the sports event than. And, of course, that's traditionally been done is because sports was was one of the early right, drivers of, H, of HD sales. Yeah. Well, they did an intro. There were, I understand, three or four 4K cameras at the uh, Super Bowl. But they never used them for 4K because, of course, nobody, you know, there's really no way to broadcast 4K. <laughs> no for it to go. But what they were doing is using it to zoom in because they have, uh, they could take uh, one quarter of the screen yep. and that's 1080p. So uh, they were, they had 4X zoom basically. Um, and, and speaking of which, at the very end of Mac Break Weekly, uh, Alex, was, was that a, an oversampling, interpolating piece That's of software. That's a good software. question. Hydra, we were talking about a camera app uh, for um, uh, the iOS uh, platform. And it's interesting because I don't know how it works. It shoots 50 shots of handheld. And he said even more if you're on a tripod. And that somehow. Would be it then. Yep. And, and because think about it. I mean, you're, you're, if you oversample that's what classic oversampling is you, yeah. you 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 take a huge number of photos of the same thing um you are going to be able to to 
mathematically increase the effective resolution. So you're, you know, in in order to to interpolate, and but I mean to see you zoom in from yeah. from such a distance on the text on that screen, that's just amazing. <laughs> that was pretty impressive, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I have to play with this a little bit. That was Alex's uh, pick on Mac Break Weekly. Hydra. Very cool. H-Y-D-R-A. So, yeah. uh, today is the long-awaited episode that is going to disappoint some people, unfortunately, who may have been over-relying on the, on the guarantees of anonymity that the Tor network uh, promises. Um, there, there was a... A paper that caught my attention, which I ended up being a little disappointed in, um, but that, but it, the references, it had like two pages of references to prior work. So I dug deep and looked at everything that's been done, and bottom line is I wouldn't trust Tor Ooh. to my anonymity any any longer. Um, the it was a nice experiment um we first talked about it in episode seven zero episode 70 uh in march of 2008 and we've revisited it a few times but but the designers made some choices which arguably back then may have made sense but they're now built into the system and in 2015, you can't count on them oh, any longer. Oh dear! So um, we're going to we're going to look at uh, unmasking Tor's anonymity promises, and unfortunately, uh, there's not much left on, uh, when we really dig down. Um, but we're going to talk about the news of the week. Also, there were uh, two main things that happened, uh, and that is news of Regin's apparent heritage. And we, just as we were going to air last week, I talked about a, a vulnerability that I, I erroneously associated with OpenWall. It, it turns out that's just where the, the, the link came in from a reposting to the OpenWall list. But it wasn't about OpenWall at all. It's about mainstream Linux, and it's really bad. So we'll talk about that. Um, I got I, I saw in the mailbag an interesting question about Squirrel I want to talk about, and then uh, we'll plow into Tor. Indeed we will. Before we get going, though, let's talk a little bit about uh, one of my favorite uh, sponsors for the show, the good folks at IT Pro TV, who uh, have paid homage, shall we say, to Twit <laughs> by, de- by designing a way to learn IT skills uh, as enga- everybody's engaging and fun is watching uh, Twit. It's it's called IT Pro TV, and it offers really engaging training in information technology. Uh, stream to your Roku, your computer, to your mobile device. It's phenomenal. Um, it's dedicated to the world of IT, which means if you're trying to get a cert, uh, say the A plus or the CCNA or the Security plus or the MCSA, or you're trying to learn PowerShell or Linux. IT Pro TV is the place you can go to get those skills, which is phenomenal, uh, especially since it costs less than any technical school and, and frankly, uh, is more fun. Adam Gordon teaches, for instance, if you're a security person, you probably know his name, the ISC Squared courses. He wrote the book on security. He does uh, all the ISC Squared CERT prep courses. 
There's courses on Microsoft uh, Office, the MCSA. There's Cisco, CompTIA, Project Management. Yes, Apple too. Apple has uh, Mac Integration Basics, uh, Mac Management Basics. They're doing more all the time. In fact, that's what's so cool about IT Pro TV. Just like Twit, they're recording 30 hours a week of new programming. You can go and watch them live. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and click the on-air button. You can see what's streaming live. They're, they're, they're working all the time. In fact, they even have a chat room, much like uh, we do, so you can chat with them as you're learning. The Virtual Machine Sandbox Lab, Sandbox Lab environment lets you practice from any OS that supports HTML5, any browser. I mean, even Chrome OS, you could set up a Windows server and all the clients and all of that. It's so sweet. Learn PowerShell? Sure. Learn Linux Plus? Sure. The Measure Up practice exams are included with your subscription. That's worth 79 bucks. Let's you test your skills before you go actually take the exam. And you pay once a month for everything. Daily updates, new features. It's easy to cancel. They know that, you know, you're, you're an adult. They're going to treat you like one. You get to interact with the hosts via chat, web-based Q&As specific to study topics. These guys have been teaching this stuff forever. And by the way, if you subscribe to the annual plan, you'll get, you'll get all the uh, episodes DRM-free so you can listen anytime. There's also corporate and group pricing. Clients include HP, UCSD, Penn State, Stanford, many other schools and colleges, and groups that support our military, which is really great. ITPro.tv slash security now. we got a deal for you. Normally $57 a month, $570 for a year. But they're huge fans of Twit, and they and and we love them, and they love us. So they're offering you thirty percent off right now, if you use the offer code SN three zero. Thirty percent off, and that's not just for the first month or year; that's forever. In fact, once you reach their thirteenth month, they'll reduce your subscription rate even farther. You're gonna that we're talking less than forty bucks a month, four hundred dollars for an entire year, but it's going to go down even more after the. The, the 12th month, you're going to pay no more than $24.95 a month or $249 for a year. This is such a great way to learn. Put it up on your Roku and just have it running all the time. ITPro.tv slash security now. Don't forget to use that offer code SN30 to save 30% off for life. And you even get to try it free for seven days. ITPro.tv. Say hello to Tim and Don and the gang over there. They're, they're great. They're doing such a good job. Uh, ITPro. TV slash security now. Steve Gibson, you got the tech or uh, security news for us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, first item is that um, Der Spiegel released some additional Edward Snowden documents uh, probably now about uh, three weeks ago, um, maybe a little more than that. And those discussed a a project that the NSA was known to have had called QWERTY, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, named, of course, after the top row, the top left row of characters on our typical QWERTY keyboard. Um, some, in, in looking at the documents, a number of security researchers around the world, and specifically uh, the guys at Kaspersky Lab, thought they looked familiar and they dug in to their region code and found absolute 
clear duplication, meaning that there is a strong reason to believe that Regin, which we were we were previously thinking due to the targets that it had been aimed at, was probably not a Western tool, um, but may have, for example, been Russian in origin because the targets seem to be us, you know, seem to be more Western oriented. Um, but the evidence strongly implies that this is another one of the tools by the so-called Five Eyes team. Five Eyes is Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US, um, which are bound by a multilateral uh, agreement called UK-USA, which is a, a treaty for joint co- cooperation in signals intelligence. And um, this specifically looks like it was originally of Australian in origin, um, but is now tied into this uh, this um, uh, uh, product from the, the, the that is directly track uh, traceable back to the NSA. And in fact, in the first page of our show notes, I, I took a snapshot of a screenshot showing side by side code of Regin on the left and QWERTY on the right, and that particular snapshot highlights one one instruction a push instruction but if you look above and below it's all the same code and there's just no question that this came from the same source so you know even though attribution is notoriously difficult of course we were talking about this with regard to the sony attack and and where that came from it really looks like there's some serious cyber espionage technology available to um, our forces, I mean, to our governments and being shared among these countries. And, and remember that Regin, Regin is the one where attacks were, a- after it was identified, we looked at how it was being used. And it was things like, like, a, like going in and getting the itineraries of guests in hotels and figuring out who was traveling and, and who, um, which people were meeting with each other and i mean true sort of cyber espionage where you're creeping around the internet pulling records out from where you need it and so this thing has infiltrated lots of networks in the past and uh it's looks like it's another one of the tools that the west has uh available to it so really really much more interesting than than we thought Okay, now last week I had mentioned Ghost. Um, it was a vulnerability that had just been posted. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I mistakenly believed that it was tied to OpenWall because it was, an, it was being, it was in the OpenWall mailing list. And that's the link that I had upon. And, and I promised to look into it for today's podcast. Well, it turns out it's just a straight up very bad. Uh, Linux vulnerability, oh. uh, which which is yeah, which is has 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 existed since 2000, and was sort of coincidentally removed in 2012, but it existed for 12 years, and it was never perceived until researchers researchers at Qualys um, 
just were doing an internal security audit and stumbled over this thing. Since even though it was, it was removed, because it wasn't at the time seen as a, as a security vulnerability, it's, it, it still exists in many packages which are deployed that haven't bothered to update themselves to the latest, to, to the very latest. It, it's in glibc. And it is a, a, one of the more fundamental functions that exists. Um, it's in the function, um, I'm looking for it in my notes. glibc is on to... every, is everywhere. Oh, it is. Well, that's a library okay. <laughs> that that basically you, you need. Well, yes, because it provides get host by name function. Get host by name is DNS lookup. Get host by name, just like it sounds. Get the IP of this computer by its name. So, um, so Qualys immediately alerted the major Linux distributors about the security hole. Um, and by the time this thing became public, most had released patches for it. Um, it's it's interesting in that you would you would tend to think that it would be difficult to exploit. Um, it turns out that it it overwrites the heap, which is the um, the, the stack is one of the dynamic uh, allocation structures that grows down. The heap typically grows up from the bottom of memory where the stack grows down from the top of memory um, just in terms of the way me memory is allocated. And at most, a character pointer can be overwritten. Now, on a thirty-two on a thirty-two bit or a uh, on a thirty-two bit machine, that's four bytes of memory. On a sixty-four bit machine, that's eight bytes of memory. That is, that's the natural size of a pointer on those hardware architectures. And so you'd think, eh, you know, <laughs> you really can't do much with four bytes or maybe eight bytes. And what you can overwrite is strictly limited. You can only overwrite digits and dots, and a terminating null. So what that tells us is that there was a mistake in the function such that the DNS, the, the sort of the ASCII version of the DNS um, IP address could like just barely overflow the end of some buffer where just so like one, you know, only those characters. Well, it turns out, that despite those limitations, arbitrary code execution can be achieved. And as a proof of concept, they developed a full-fledged remote exploit against the Exum mail server, which bypasses all existing protections, address space layout randomization, the, the, the no execute bit on the segments and everything. And in, in one of the, I think it was um, uh, ZDNet that, that wrote, unlike most secure, or like, unlike some security announcements, um, these guys are not crying wolf. Qualys has developed a proof of concept in which simply sending a specially created email to a mail server enabled them to create a remote shell to the Unix machine. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, holy it's crap. That's really convenient. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so 
Um, because it wasn't seen before as a security problem, um, it wasn't, you know, there, there was no, there, there was no move to go back and retroactively make sure that nobody was using this, this 12-year span of glibc libraries. So uh, it, it exists in any Linux system that was built with glibc 2.2, which was released on November 10th, 2000, and it was fixed in between releases of glibc um, versions 2.17 and 2.18. So um, anyway, it is, it, it, this is the kind of thing where you absolutely want to make sure if, if you have exposure to the public Internet, specifically if you're running a server, a, a, a Linux, a Red Hat, Debian, CentOS, uh, Ubuntu, I mean, just across the board, as you said, Leo, glibc is, is, is intrinsic to Linux, it is its you know core networking functionality. So th this was a biggie. Definitely something that you want to make sure uh, you've gotten yourself patched for. Yeah, wow. Um, I ran across a, a fun question about Squirrel that uh, I wanted to address because it it, rep it represents a sort of a one of the main features of the protocol which might not be clear to people. Um, Jay Littlefield uh, in San Francisco is a listener. He, is, he wrote saying, hello, Leo and Steve. He said, fan of the show here. I've been listening to Security Now on my commute for the past several years. I'm a proud owner of Spinrite, and thanks to you two, a Harry's Razor convert. He said, I really appreciate the great shows you produce. I'm also very excited about Squirrel and hope to use it on my own websites as it becomes available within the major website development packages. And that work is underway. Uh, in fact, there are guys just waiting for me to put the final, the finishing touches on the protocol because it's, I, I've been adding some features and taking away some features as I've been, you know, just pushing this path right, like right up to the finish line because I've, you know, when I, I sort of over-designed some things, and when it got to actually doing it, it's like, wait a minute, we really don't need this. And I want to keep things as simple as possible so that other people implementing Squirrel don't need to put stuff into the protocol that we don't end up actually using. Anyway, so he said, Steve, I have a Squirrel question for you that I've not been able to find the answer to in any of your podcasts or on your website. You often cite the fact that Squirrel creates a unique public-private key pair for each individual website accessed. Because of this, a breach of one website will not compromise your identity on any other website, unlike the common practice of reusing passwords. This is a great improvement, but what about your identity on the compromised site? Let's say I'm an active Squirrel user for all of my web transactions. I read about a major security breach at, say, target.com, where I'm an active Squirrel user. Let's assume, hypothetically, that their customer database has been compromised, and I'm instructed to reset my password for my account. If I'm using a password, I can do that. But passwords are supposed to be archaic once Squirrel arrives. If so then what's the squirrel equivalent 
of a password reset for an individual site in the event of a breach. You've mentioned Squirrel has the ability to change your master ID should it become compromised. But a breach of my Squirrel credentials at Target.com, by definition, does not compromise my identity anywhere else on the web. Can you elaborate on how this situation should be handled by a Squirrel user? I'm afraid the answer to this question is currently lost on me. Thanks again for a wonderful show. All you do for the community of followers. Regards, Jay. Okay, so what's different about Squirrel as opposed to a username and password is that Squirrel is a, is a network protocol, whereas a username and password is static data that you're requiring the target website to hold secret. And I've often said Squirrel gives a website no secrets to keep, which is part of its strength. That's what like, the large part of where its strength derives from. And the reason I got so excited about this when this thing, when the idea occurred to me. So the idea is that if a site, if Target in Jay's example were compromised and their whole user database got stolen, it doesn't matter because what they get is your public key. But what what someone needs to impersonate you, that is, even if they had your public key, um, that they're not able to impersonate you at Target.com, whereas if they had your username and password, they could. The reason is that the, the Squirrel protocol, the, the core of it is a challenge to you. The website... The, like Target.com sends a, a, a nonce, a random blob of gibberish. Doesn't matter what it is at all. It can be encoded with specific, specific information to make the website's job easier, but it doesn't have to be. It just has to be unique. And then the key is you sign this random blob with your private key that never leaves your device, never needs to, and, and that's that's the whole point of the protocol. You sign the blob and return the blob with your signature. And the, 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 the key signing technology verifies with the public key that you have properly signed the private key. So it doesn't matter if bad guys get your public key for target.com because if they tried to impersonate you target target would send them a blob and say okay prove that you are that you have the private key matching the public key wh- which you are claiming is yours and no bad guy could do that so that's the answer jay um and 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 it's part of what makes the squirrel protocol so strong is that we don't give websites any secrets to keep um and we're dynamically proving over the internet through this protocol that yes we know the secret that matches the the public uh key that we gave you so very cool and i i got a a a fun note from an igor Cove, okay, I'm, I didn't pra- I didn't practice his name beforehand. Kove Hiznikov, nice. who's in New Jersey. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Sorry, I Igor. I think it's Kovejnikov. 
Koveshnikov. Or Koveshnikov. Depends how, in New how, Jersey. How, how Russian Igor wants to be. <laughs> well, I think he'll forgive me. He says, hello, Stephen Leo. About a week ago, my former boss brought me his laptop that wouldn't boot. I remember I installed a crucial M4 256 gig SSD in it and was puzzled. What could be wrong with the SSD? When I turned on the laptop, I could get to first mouse cursor appearance in Windows, and then the hard drive light would become solid lit and nothing would happen. I connected the SSD using USB to SATA adapter to my computer. I could read the drive, but it took me about four days to retrieve 170 gigs of documents. It would freeze on some files for long minutes and then would continue to copy. It behaved exactly like a damaged mechanical hard drive, just without a clicking noise. Later, it turned out that my boss followed my suggestion and all his documents were backed up by Carbonite. Since I always try to retrieve most data before I started playing with drives... Actually, that's all the sentence says. So I'm not sure where he was going with that. And he says, he says, I always wanted to try Spinrite on SSD, but it doesn't make sense to run maintenance on them. Well, that's not true, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Here was my opportunity, and I used it. Started on level one just to see what Spinrite makes of the drive. It, it ran quickly, but showed some R's, but nothing changed when I tested a boot. Level two, however completely fixed the drive. When I rebooted the laptop, I got the login screen and the laptop runs just like new. It's easy to understand what happens to damaged mechanical drives, he writes, but really hard when it comes to SSDs. My suspicion is it's software firmware issue. Something happens to internal table of cell assignments, but then how Spinrite is able to fix it. So, okay, um, it turns out that the push for SSD density has done the same thing to solid-state technology as it has done to mechanical technology. In other words, they are cramming, arguably, more data into a small space than they should. And they've become reliant in solid-state media just the same as they have with with physical spinning media on error correction, so that they're they're like they're on the the hairy edge, sort of in the, operating in the gray, where they they know they may not be able to get some bits back, especially as those age over time on an SSD, and as the as the technology of the SSD wears the SSD increasingly, so they fall back to algorithmic math to fix to like to figure out what the missing bits um, that could not be read are and uh, so spinrite actually is as useful uh, from all of our experience on an ssd as it is on a hard drive and it it can recover them and make them faster and i would argue that level two is perfect maintenance it is not writing to the drive unless it needs to. So you, you use Spinrite to, do, to, to perform preventative maintenance on an SSD, and it'll keep those U's ever from showing up. Definitely worth doing. Thank you, Igor.
Igor. Igor Kovechnikov. Igor. Igor Kovechnikov. Steve, we're going to take a break. When we come back, the story of Tori. Oh, yeah. The sad story. Sad story of Tori. Uh, but first, uh, let's talk a little bit about Audible.com. Nothing sad here unless you read a sad story. Audible is a great resource for audiobooks, 150,000 strong. I see they've got the new Neil Gaiman. I, one of the things I love about Audible is all the new stuff uh, nowadays comes out on audiobook at audible.com. So, see, frankly, I don't read uh, books anymore. I listen to audiobooks. I just, it's great when you're in your car, when you're at the gym. Walking the dog, sitting in the hot tub, I listen to audiobooks. Uh, Neil Gaiman has a new anthology of, uh, he calls them short fictions and disturbances. It's called Trigger Warning. <laughs> I like the name. And uh, it yeah. includes a Doctor Who story that was written for the 50th anniversary of the series. Uh, a new tale that revisits the world of American Gods, one of my favorite Neil Gaiman novels. He reads it, and now sometimes authors uh, don't make the best narrators, but Neil Gaiman... As for what they would find that might disturb them, or shake them, or make them think something they had never thought before, I felt that was their own lookout. He makes it all We poetry. are mature. We decide what we read. I love listening to Neil Gaiman read. Uh, in fact, I've listened to quite a few of his uh, novels. Um, he is one of uh, my favorite novelists, and when he narrates it himself, it's awesome. But here's the deal. I'm going to get you your, book, your first book free at audible.com. That's one of the reasons I mentioned this book. Uh, perhaps you're going to audible.com and a little overwhelmed by all the choices. I would be. <laughs> well, here's the deal. Just uh, pick out a book and you're going to get that first one for free when you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. You're going to be signing up for the gold account. That's the book a month account. It includes the daily digest of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal read to you. And then you pick a book. If it's You pay nothing for the first 30 days. If you cancel in that time, you, you, you go home without shelling out a nickel. But the book will be yours to keep forever. And it's not just fiction. There's nonfiction, too. Uh, I, we were, uh, you know, we're doing this new web uh, design, and the, the team that's doing it is big into Scrum. So I thought, I need to know what Scrum is. And uh, yes, there are books on Scrum. From the, in fact, this guy created Scrum, it's uh, part of the agile process of programming. You like Shakespeare? A new biography just came out from Peter Aykroyd uh, that people are saying is it. Uh, I just read a review of uh, Nick Hornsby's latest. I love Nick Hornby. He wrote uh, About a Boy. Uh, his newest funny girl is about the swinging 60s. I might have to get that. Or perhaps you're a moviegoer. Have you seen uh, American Sniper? You want to read the original by Chris Kyle or Fifty Shades of Grey? Maybe keep that one to yourself. Don't don't share that with the kids. They do have great kids stuff, too. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now and read all about it. Peter Diamandis is going to join us soon on um, on uh, Triangulation, his new book, Bold, How to Go Big, Make Bank, and Better the World. Maybe listen to that before he comes comes on. You'll be all ready. I, I listen all the time, and I invite you to do so. If you find a book you like, Create the Audible account, sign up, and then add any book like uh, Neil Gaiman's new one. I'm going to add that to my wish list. And then that way, I uh, I will remember it when it's time to uh, to pick a new book, when I get some new credits. Audible, um, yes. I was going to say, is the Expanse series there? Uh, uh, let me first look. book is Leviathan Wakes, uh, James A. Corey. I think author. so. That sounds very familiar. Yes, it is. You recommend that? That's the one you were talking about, right? 
Well, I haven't ever mentioned it before. I was chatting with Mark uh, Thompson over the weekend, and he's and, and we're you know we're sort of catching up on what shows we're watching and so forth. Uh, Sci-Fi Network is going to be doing the Expanse series. And well, I actually I always, have I've listened to the first one, The Five and Wakes. You see, it's in my library. I'm reading it now, yeah. and I'm about uh, about a quarter of the way in. I'm still I, I really like it. I don't know what what's going to happen, but you know that's always the case before you've read it. So, yeah. uh, for what it's worth, uh, I always like if I can to read the book before I see you know the series, the movie, or whatever, because the book's just better. Um, well, but all Leviathan four of, of the Expanse series are on here and Good. a, a Good. novella called The Churn. So, yes, if you're a James Corey fan, uh, you'll find James S.A. Corey's books on Audible. Really great for science fiction lately. They, uh, they've they done such a good job of getting their science fiction library up to snuff. It's fantastic. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Your first book's free. Won't be your last, I predict. <laughs> Let's talk tour with Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. Okay, so we opened the topic back on March 28th of 2008, seven years ago, with episode 70, uh, that was titled Internet, Inter- Internet, Internet Anonymity. Um, and we came back and revisited it two years ago on the 8th of March in 2013 with our episode on Tor Hidden Services. That was the one where we had we sort of followed the advance of Tor, um, where they'd added the protocol that allowed the servers themselves to be hidden. So rather than thinking of Tor sort of as a cloud, where outside the cloud you had both clients and servers, and they were all connected to the cloud, and the cloud mushed it all around so that nobody who was looking could figure out what went in and what came out where. But the but but essentially the the servers existed on regular public IPs. This you know the hidden services changed that, bringing you know hiding the servers in dot onion um, domain names so that you got them by some cryptic URL dot onion. Um, so that was then. Um, then recently, a an, a piece of research was published, and that's just this is the most only the latest among scores of papers because this has really interested academia. It's you know people have been asking, well, you know, like like uh, doing academic attacks on the protocol, and I and I should mention when I mention attacks throughout the rest of this podcast, I don't mean malicious, you know, DDoS sorts of attacks. I, I'm talking about attacking the protocol, meaning you know, academically tearing it apart, uh, looking for weaknesses in the design, and, and also weaknesses in the in the nature of what it has to live on top of, meaning the packet-switched internet. And and it turns out that's the Achilles heel of Tor, is that the internet was never designed for anonymity. It it wasn't. Back, you know, seven years ago, I was was looking through some of that transcript from back then, and I talked about how, you know, an IP address doesn't, you know, isn't a person's name, but it's easily mappable to an endpoint on the internet because the internet was designed back when it was first created only with the assurance 
that an existing internet address could put a packet on the internet and it would eventually get to the other internet address where the packet contained both a source IP and a destination IP. That was all it was supposed to do. Anonymity didn't even occur to these guys. They were like, you know, <laughs> that that that's many generations of evolution of application of this underlying networking structure later people start saying eh but you know we'd like to also you know anonymity would be handy it would come in handy for like uh people who are trying to uh deal with repressive uh regimes uh who are um you know who who want who want that feature added to their networking experience for whatever reason. So the the piece of the, this most recent research that caught my attention claimed, it made the claim that 81% of Tor users can be de-anonymized by analyze, analyzing router information. Um, so I looked closely at that and I was not so impressed um, what these guys did, I mean, their research was good, but so it's, I don't mean that I was not impressed by their research, but I was, it, it was sort of, um, they, they, they did things to, to create that claim. Their idea was that instead of performing very careful, high resolution timing analysis of individual packets, which is what um, you would normally have to do in order to um, to attack Tor at at the traffic analysis side, and we'll get to that in a second. But rather than doing that, they were using a much more sort of soft flow mapping that Cisco builds into many of their routers known as NetFlow. NetFlow technology um, does more sort of ag aggregate analysis. And due to its nature, you don't have the fine grain um, visibility into individual packet timing that you would otherwise get if you were, if you were monitoring the actual flow. But on the other hand, it's convenient to use NetFlow because it's built into so many routers and essentially the, 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 the router is doing a lot of that job. So these guys asked the question, could we use NetFlow, something sort of as fuzzy instead of as focused to – could we or how could we use NetFlow – to de-anonymize Tor traffic, sort of as an academic exercise. What they had to do in order to pull this off is deliberately interfere with the traffic coming from a server back to the user. Now, that's a powerful technique and we'll, we're going to come back to that in a broader context also uh, and look at just exactly how powerful that is but it's powerful enough that by by delaying or dropping or blocking bursts of traffic from the server 
NetFlow built into routers, as fuzzy as it is, is enough. And so that's what they were saying, where they sort of came up with this broad 81% of Tor users. I'm, I'm less impressed with that. But what happened was that paper was full of references to the prior work that had been done. And so I spent a lot of time digging through that and came away with the unfortunate conclusion that Tor can no longer be relied upon for anonymity. That is, um, if you presume that someone like the NSA want that with has you know who has that kind of scope and reach if you presume that someone like that wants to penetrate the anonymity guarantees that tor provides the work that's been done in in attacking and i mean that in the sense of you know a, academic attacks on this question how good is the anonymity um the work that's been done demonstrates Tor doesn't actually provide much in the way of anonymity for that class of attacker. And so it, it's important to understand that it it definitely obfuscates your traffic. But if someone is absolutely determined to find out who you are, they probably can. That is, if, if, if a, if a, nation state scale actor wants that there was a perfect a perfect example of that um was recently reported by Ars Technica where um the uh the FBI was pursuing um some people involved with what was known as Silk Road 2 um and uh the article says despite the use of Tor FBI investigators were able to identify IPS, IP addresses that allegedly hosted and accessed, so that is both sides, hosted and accessed Silk Road 2 servers, including the Comcast-provided IP address of someone named Brian Farrell, who prosecutors said helped manage Silk Road 2. In the, in the court-filed Affidavit, DHS Special Agent Michael Larson wrote, quote, from January 2014 to July of 2014, an FBI New York source of information, and they said in parens SOI, so that, that the source of information remains unknown, but SOI is, 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 is a term of art, provided reliable IP addresses for Tor and hidden services such as Silk Road 2, which included its main marketplace URL, its vendor URL, its forum URL, and its support interface. And that, uh, and I, I, I cut out all the other URLs because they're just gibberish. But for example, the support interface is UZ. 434-SEL7-ARQUP6.onion. So, you know, they're all like that in uh, inside of Tor. And they're all supposed to be only available to people who are inside the network, not to a, you know, 
specifically not to someone you're trying to hide from. The SOIs, that is that source of information's information, ultimately led to the identification of Silk Road 2 servers, which are supposed to be masked, which led to the identification of at least another 17 black markets on Tor. That is black markets operating on Tor. The SOI also identified approximately 78 IP addresses that accessed a vendor.onion address. A user, uh, this affidavit explains, cannot accidentally end up on the vendor site. The site is for vendors only, and access is only given to the site by the Silk Road administrators and moderators after confirmation of a significant number of successful transactions. If a user visits the vendor URL, he or she is asked for a username and password. Without that, the vendor website cannot be viewed. So this is, you know, real-world demonstration that there exists technology for penetrating the Tor network. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be traffic analysis. These people may have been doing other things. There have been ways that the FBI has had of, for example, using um, various sorts of persistent cookies uh, using Adobe Flash and Firefox. I've seen I've seen specifically named that is, you know, uh, you know, non Tor means of of de-anonymizing users, in which case it doesn't matter whether they're in Tor or not. But we we definitely know from the academic research that's been done of of strict pattern analysis that it is possible to penetrate the the guarantee that Tor provides. And and the reason is the internet, as I as I said earlier, was just never designed to provide anonymity, and it really doesn't. So we should look at Tor as a an, an experiment in in how could that how could anonymity be provided? But the fact is, it is extremely difficult to actually achieve. Um, now we could break internet communications into into two broad categories low latency and high latency the uh, an example of a high latency um, service is email where it's a store and forward uh, system and and there because you don't need something delivered in in real time or near real time you can achieve a much higher level of anonymity um, especially if you do other things like padding message lengths um, to to for and obviously in encrypt the contents in order to uh, obscure when an object leaves the the anonymity network and when it enters the problem is that that's not useful for web surfing or for other applications, you know, SSH, for example, uh, where you, you're you're sending keystrokes through an SSH tunnel and you'd like them to get there uh, in relatively short time so that you're able to get the answers back in relatively short time. Uh, and, of course, web surfing is, is inherently a relatively low latency uh, activity. And that's really... The Achilles heel 
of Tor is that Tor was deliberately designed. I mean, and again, and again, we, we should remember this was sort of done initially as an experiment, a project to see what could be achieved. And it grew over time and it, it acquired notoriety and it does offer some guarantees, but it is far from perfect. And so no one should assume that it is perfect. Um, and also, the designers of the original designers of Tor made some assumptions and made some compromises that are now coming back to haunt us. Um, I found a, a very nice summary in one of these academic papers that, that summed it up this way. They wrote, Tor aims to protect against a peculiar threat model that is unusual within the anonymous communications community. It is, and, and so, the, so they, they made that assertion first, and then they step back a little bit to say, it is conventional to attempt to guarantee the anonymity of users against a global passive adversary who has the ability to observe all network links. It is also customary to assume that transiting network messages can be injected, deleted, or modified, and that the attacker controls, again, attacker meaning someone trying to, to penetrate the anonymity, controls a subset of the network nodes. This models a very powerful adversary, and systems that protect against it can be assumed to be secure in a very wide range of real-world conditions. The point this paper was making was, that's not Tor. It went on to say, Tor, on the other hand, assumes a much weaker threat model. It protects against a weaker non-global adversary, that is an adversary who doesn't have complete visibility into the network, which, as we know, a contemporary, well, you know, a contemporary powerful adversary like, you know, a, a state, a nation state actor might. Then it says, who can only observe a fraction of the network, modify the, tra the traffic only on this fraction, and control a fraction of Tor nodes. Furthermore, the paper says, Tor does not attempt to protect against trafficked confirmation attacks, where an adversary observes two parties that he suspects to be communicating with each other to either confirm or reject this suspicion. Instead, Tor aims to make it difficult for an adversary with a poor a priori suspicion of who is communicating with whom to gain more information. A poor a so with a what? <laughs> you want an a you want to an, translate the Latin, please? An a priori, a, a ahead of the you know uh, uh, facts known ahead of uh, uh, you know in in advance of of your uh, intent to confirm. Ah, okay, just checking. So, <laughs> so what we discussed back eight or seven years ago was the crypto model. 
That was the whole onion concept. And nobody has attempted to attack the crypto of Tor because, as we said then, it is it is fabulous. I mean, it's fun. It's solid. Um, and just to briefly recap, because that's not where the problem is, the user chooses a circuit through a to- through through a a group, uh, sort of a cloud of Tor nodes, where they first at random choose one Tor node and negotiate keys with that Tor node. For example, the Tor node will give them its public key, and nobody knows its private key. They can then use its public key to create traffic that only it is able to decrypt. So then you can think of them using that to jump their presence to that node, where then it becomes a proxy for them. From that position, they then choose another node in the Tor network and similarly get its public key and and then generate communications that only it is able to decipher. And that's going through their first link now, which only that first link can decipher to the second link. Then they do it a third time and get a get a community. So they, they, they then essentially move their virtual presence out to that second node running now through two proxies. They then choose a third node, similarly negotiate it, uh, negotiate with it. Okay, now what they have is the public keys for a sequence of three nodes in the Tor network. And they they generate the traffic they want to make public. And they first wrap it in the third node's um, uh, crypto using its public key. Then they wrap it in the, they wrap that in the second node's crypto using its public key. And they finally wrap that in the first node's crypto using its public key. Thus, the concept of an onion with, 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 with like shells, um, um, you know, uh, successive shells of crypto. What's cool about this is that they send this onion to the first node. The first node can only decrypt the outer shell because that's the only thing that it has the the key for. It was unable to see into any of the traffic that um uh that you used with the second to the second node, it may have seen you get the that second node's public key, but as soon as you established communications with that second node using that second node's public key, it was then blind to it. So all it can do is take that outer wrapper off of the blob that it's received. What it finds there is instructions about where to send it, that is, to the second node. So it's, it forwards that blob that it cannot see into because that blob is now encrypted on the outer shell with the second node's crypto. It forwards it to the second node. Second node takes that outer wrapper off, 
Now it's got a blob um, that is is becoming smaller, but it has instructions to send it to the third node. The, it, the third node receives it. It takes its crypto off, and finally it gets to the original content you, the user, wanted to send, which it places on the Internet, and out it goes. And the beauty of this architecture, which we discussed back in Episode 70, if anyone, anyone wants uh, a deeper dive, is that that the the process is bidirectional. That is, when this information comes back, the nodes are able to reverse the, 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 the path. No node knows anything about the, the process except the next node that it forwards it to because it can only see the instructions that are, that are now on the outside after it took its layer of crypto off. So you, you get through this very clever cryptographic system, strong anonymity. That's the crypto model. The problem is the traffic flow model, and that's the Achilles heel. Now, they, the designers understood this, and they did what they could to, to weaken the, the applicability of the traffic flow model. For example, if, if everything that came in was routed deterministically to some exit node, that is, a, 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 a packet goes in and that exact packet comes out, then that would be a problem. So random length padding is added to to obscure that. Some random timing is introduced in you know throughout this entire system. And specifically, we presume that the that the whole Tor system is busy. The busier it is, and the larger it is. Right now, it's like 5,000 nodes. Once upon a time, it was 50. So it's gotten a lot bigger. That's good for everybody who wants anonymity through the network because it just means there's a lot more going on. So you want busy Tor nodes with lots of traffic coming in and lots of traffic going out because one of the things it does is it puts every flow of communications. I just described one flow, you know, one circuit uh, um, through this three-node um, Tor network. It, it puts them all into a round-robin queue such that every flow has sort of its own buffer. And the first thing Tor does is chop everything up into 512-byte cells and a cell is, is is a term of art within the within the Tor network. Um, so even though packets may be larger coming in, and Tor operates over TCP. So and we know TCP is flow based. So so packets of different sizes are coming into the first Tor node, and being reassembled into a continuous stream. Tor then chops those into. 512-byte cells that will definitely destroy the original packet boundaries. So basically, it's repacketizing the traffic into these fixed-size 12-byte cells. The fact that they're fixed-size means that they, they, they no longer reveal anything about the incoming packet sizes. And then, in a round-robin fashion, 
it sends them back out. So nobody looking at the outside of this Tor node can can easily map up the variable length TCP packets coming in from hopefully a large number of sources and these fixed size 512-byte packets, which are exiting fully encrypted, wrapped in some number of onion wrappings, going off to other Tor nodes. That's all they can see. So, I mean, you can see that the people who designed this intended for it to be daunting. Um, The problem is that this ends up being... Um, from a traffic flow model, a bit like metadata. We've talked about the power of metadata. Even though you can't see into a flow, you can still get information from looking at the fact of the flow. So, so somebody who decides, okay, inside the Tor network, we don't, we, we have no vis, we have no visibility into that. We've got twelve byte cell packets encrypted bouncing all over the place but ultimately it has to emerge and and by looking at the the aggregate short-term packet sizes and timing and performing a statistical analysis over what goes in and what comes out what these academic papers have have shown basically over and over and over is that it is very possible to form an opinion. So the first part of the attack is is having a guess. And in fact, we've seen this before. We were just talking about this when we were talking about how um, the Enigma cipher was broken. Basically, those Bombas, they were making guesses. They were saying... We know it's not this set of rotor positions. We know it's not this set of rotor positions, nor is it this set, but it might be this set. Let's try those. And so the Bomba would stop, and the guys would quickly read out a candidate set and then go try it. And then the Bomba would start up again looking for, or be restarted, looking for the next set. So with Tor, it turns out attacks like that also work. It's possible to rule out a huge number of of possible links that that are in fact where it just doesn't work based on what somebody knows of the Tor network. But you then end up with a bunch of candidates and then you apply the second level attack, which is testing the candidates. And it turns out that is a huge weakness. So if if an active attacker believed that two points were communicating and had the ability to deliberately introduce deterministic changes in the traffic flow, they would see evidence of that coming out the other side. And so the, the, the final real weakness is that, um, is that if you if you have an active attack rather than a passive attack, meaning that you you do something to alter the traffic, you can quickly confirm or rule out assumptions of possible pairings. And 
when you then operate at the scale of a nation state with big taps into the internet all over the place and when Tor is an obvious target for bad guys using it to mask their identity, you've got means, you've got motivation, and you've got budget in order to pull this off. So I would consider that Tor is useful as part of a, of a defense in depth strategy. That is, I wouldn't say don't bother it using it if you really want anonymity, but I would say, first of all, don't do anything illegal. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want the federal government to know about because, um, you know, they fit the profile of someone uh, able to penetrate Tor. I would say, you know, unfortunately, you the the dream of a Tor user of just being able to sit back, you know, in their home or apartment somewhere uh, with their, you know, their public IP address and use Tor in, with confidence that they're able to do anything they want to at all and no one can get them because they're using Tor. That's just not real. So the only way, I mean, if you absolutely need anonymity is to roll together old school uh, approaches and new school. You know, go, go somewhere uh, to do this as far away from home as convenient. Be anonymous there. Pay with cash. Uh, don't be. Don't go somewhere familiar. Uh, don't know anyone. Don't make any friends. Don't talk to anyone. Don't stay long. Plan ahead. Uh, rehearse for speed. Get it done and leave. Um, don't do anything there that involves your own real-world identity. Uh, pay with cash. Change the MAC address of your machine. Maybe buy a cheap laptop just for this purpose so that it knows nothing, yet you have no history tied to it, and, and so forth. Um, and I would say, since you have control over Tor, use more than three nodes. Don't use the default settings. Uh, use as many as, as you can, uh, so that you're oh, and use widely geographically dispersed Tor nodes. Those will be slower because all of these traffic, all the traffic bouncing around, has to go through all of those locations. So yes, it's not going to be as quick and easy. But you know, to get anonymity, it can't be. Do what you need to do, and then pack up shop and leave. So new school and old school. But uh, unfortunately, all of the research demonstrates today that Tor was an interesting experiment. But, the, but what we know about what the NSA is capable of doing and some evidence of what has happened shows us that we just can't rely on it for, you know, one-stop shopping of, of uh, being a, uh, anonymous on the Internet. Is there a and, There is no technology. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say, and remember that things like cookies – you know, persistent cookies and Verizon super cookies and all those sorts of things. Those are, you know, unless you're very careful about stripping them out of your traffic, they're there too. Yeah. By the way, Verizon says it's going to give you a true opt-out. We'll see. Yeah. Haven't done Saw it that. yet. Yeah. No. Uh, is there any way to be anonymous? Um, the problem is this notion of, of near real-time versus... Uh, high latency, non-real time. I, I mean, if something like Tor existed for email, then 
the one the, the the real Achilles heel is is traffic, and I don't know how you can arrange that. You you would if you were if you were if your traffic disappeared into something large where there was no further visibility, like say you disappeared behind a university scale gnat where, you know, all of UCLA was 10 dot, you know, in, uh, you know, inside their network. And then you are, you also took some old school steps to be anonymous. It's difficult to know how they could penetrate, but maybe, you know, maybe UCLA's gnat router tracks you inside. So if the, if, if law enforcement came to that IP, they'd say, okay, now we need your records to figure out who inside the network what uh, w- was using this at this time of day. So it probably still is possible. I, I think anonymity is, a, is something of an illusion on the Internet, Leo. You could, but I mean, it, it, let's say you did use a library and you didn't uh, check in, and you, it, you know, yep. you hid your, you disguised yourself, and you, you, you used a hoodie, you, and, you, and you keep moving. I think is obviously yep. key. You, yep. c- you could do some stuff in the, in, anonymously, yeah. I, I do think that if I mean, basically, though, there we're saying the internet isn't providing our anonymity. Yeah, the real world is right. providing our anonymity. Right. You have to be anonymous in the real world for that to work. Right. Yes. Because if the real world knows who you are, the internet will somehow cough that up or can be made to cough that up. It Unfortunately, I think it yeah. really can. So what I wanted to do was was to basically revisit this and and dispel any belief in our listeners that, you know, using Tor and you're golden. Uh, you're really not. If somebody wants to find you, they probably can. All right. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. As they're pointing out in the chat room, Ross Ulbricht was arrested in the library. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, he stuck around too long. Waited a little if, too long know, to move on. You, do, you don't want to be chatting up the librarian. Mm-mm. You want to keep your head, keep, keep your head down, get keep in. Moving. get Ellen, don't go back. Don't and go never back. go back. So, yes. But, you know, if yes. you watch any of these movies, you know, the Bourne movies or whatever, there's, those are, there's plenty of good blueprints there for anonymity. And keep moving is a big one. And never go back. Yeah. Never retra- yep. retrack your retrace your roots. Yep. Can Tor be fixed, or is it inherently a problem? I think we. This is the problem: is that it's a layer on top of a system which is which was never built for anonymity. And we've talked about how difficult it is to fix things that are layers on top of other things. You know, like a firewall is black blocking traffic that wants to get through so it's it's it, instead of you know in, instead of it it's somehow operating in the reverse direction where it's blessing traffic that might be permitted it's trying to prevent something that the system was designed to do and and the internet was never designed never designed for anonymity and it it in the face of traffic analysis it really doesn't provide it. That's such a good place to stop. Uh, I think that's the coda for all of this. Steve yeah. Gibson is at grc.com. That's where you'll find Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. All the work he does on Squirrel, all that other pro bono stuff he's just doing because he's interested and he wants to give it away. It's all at grc.com. As well as this show, a 16-kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired, fabulous handwritten transcriptions of each and every episode 
Elaine was very grateful for the plug you gave her last week, by the way. Well, she's earned it. So, yeah. yes. And uh, uh, you'll also uh, find a copy of this show at our at our spot over here, twit.tv slash SN for Security Now. The Mothership. Uh, every episode is there. And what? The Mothership. The Mothership. I thought you said Twit. something else, but okay, thank you. Twit.tv. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, twit.tv slash SN, YouTube.com slash Security Now, lots of places. And, of course, wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, or use those great Twit apps. You'll find them on every platform. We didn't write them. We're just grateful that uh, there's some great developers out there. They work great. Yeah, I, Craig I, Mullaney, I all the time. Mark Hansen, yep. some great people. Dimitri, Dimitri Lialin, who uh, just to do this out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, all right, we'll be back here next Wednesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC, for yet another edition and possibly a Q&A episode. I think so. You did say Wednesday and you meant Tuesday. Tuesday. Pardon me. Tuesday. Yep. Uh, so nice if you have a question for Steve, grc.com slash feedback. Or you yes. tweet him, at SGGRC is his Twitter handle. And uh, that's another way to reach Steve Gibson. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Talk to you next week.